Circle K is America's thirst stop. And Dave's, especially when Dave needs refreshments for family movie night. So Dave heads straight to Circle K, where he grabs icy Polar Pop cups and frosters for the kids and chilled beer for the grown-ups. Enjoy family movie night, Dave. We'll be here for you all summer long. And right now at Circle K, save on all 8 or 12-ounce Red Bull flavors. Buy two, get one free. So make us your first stop. Circle K, America's thirst stop. Good morning, I'm your host David aka Baba and this is Thy Daily Edge. A fresh twist on the morning brief where I share my views on everything from recent news and current affairs to popular culture and personal finance. Hope you enjoy the show. Every single year, eight times as many ordinary Americans are killed by guns in America than American soldiers that died in the wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, and Yemen combined, all the way from 2001 to the present day. I find it interesting that much of the gun debate in America is centered around the Second Amendment. It's centered around the ideas and words drafted by America's founding fathers in the aftermath of America's revolution. But it's worth pointing out that four times as many people are killed by guns every year in present-day America than those that died in combat during the entire American Revolution. And these are ordinary Americans. They're not fighting for anything other than their right to exist as human beings. So when we discuss this idea that American civilians need firearms in order to protect their freedom and the American way, I, I must say I just find it odd that the exercise of those freedoms costs more American lives each year than those sacrificed by all American soldiers in the last half century. In the last week and a half alone, we've had three mass shootings. So in total, we've now had more than one per day of the year. In fact, if you were to base your calendar on mass shootings, if you were to turn each day at a new mass shooting, the year would end in October. Let's just take a break for a second. Before getting into any kind of debate about what should be done, what kind of gun control measures might be necessary, it's really important just to take a look at the whole history of gun lobbying in America. So we'll start in 1791. That's when the Second Amendment to the US Constitution was ratified, and that's what you'll often hear people going back to. So it says, A well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. First of all, that sentence, it's one long sentence, makes no grammatical sense. You just have a comma after a series of independent clauses makes no sense, and, and that's partly why it causes such a debate, because people read and interpret it differently. So, is there meant to be a semicolon, or a full stop, where the comma is after free state? Because that means, and this is how Republicans read it, because then that makes the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, makes it a separate clause. However, the more democratic interpretation is to read it all as one sentence, which means that the subject is a well-regulated militia. That becomes the key part. 
So the right of the people to keep and bear arms is, is in the context of a well-regulated militia. So in this case, the militia it's describing is the army that rose up against the British, in which case the Second Amendment simply means the US army should be allowed to keep their guns. And I don't think anyone would argue with that. The issue is what happens when, in 2019, ordinary citizens have more military-style assault weapons than the military. And to be fair, I don't actually like the use of the phrase military-style. I think there's a lot of rhetoric within the gun debate which is espoused and pushed by people that aren't really that familiar with guns, and I think that's what pushes a lot of people more on the right away from the discussion because it's not really being had in fair terms. It's not really being had with accurate descriptors. There's a lot of things that people say that I don't really think they necessarily understand what it means or what they're saying. So anyway, let's just continue breaking down the evolution of the gun control debate in America. So the second most important element and something you'll no doubt have come across is the NRA. What most people don't realise is that the NRA was actually set up by Democrats during the Civil War. So in 1871, its co-founder William C. Church said that it was created to promote and encourage rifle shooting on a scientific basis. In essence, what actually happened was that the Civil War kicked off and the Union soldiers realised that they were crap at shooting and, and none of them could shoot accurately particularly compared to their Confederate counterparts, who had been shooting and using rifles most of their lives. So the NRA was set up to, you know, they had shooting competitions, they were promoting shooting and hunting and those type of activities so that people could learn how to actually use and hold a gun, so that by the time they were drafted into the military, they wouldn't be just completely useless. But that all changed around the 1970s in what became known as the Revolt in Cincinnati. Basically, the NRA had started to move away from gun lobbying because there had been rising crime throughout America and most of its members were just buying guns for self-protection and not for hunting or for shooting competitions or anything like that. So really, most people just wanted guns to protect themselves. And so the NRA... I think probably from around the late 60s and then through the beginning of the 70s, they'd started moving away from gun lobbying. Um, and then at one annual meeting in Ohio, the conservative members of the NRA staged a coup and they voted out the entire old leadership and completely reinstated the NRA and changed the direction completely. So from then onwards, it became hugely focused towards gun lobbying and towards pushing the whole right to bear arms argument onto the people and onto the political stage. I think probably the next biggest or most important date after that is 2008. I think it was February 2008. Uh, the DC and Heller case, or as Americans say, DC v. Heller. Um, that was a case that went to the Supreme Court at the time, Washington DC had the strictest gun controls in the nation. At the time, you couldn't buy, you could buy guns, but you couldn't keep them in your home. And so this case was about a security guard that I think he needed a gun for work. And obviously due to the rising crime rate, he wanted to be able to carry the gun home with him because he lived in a 
area that was, you know, quite dangerous and there was a lot of crime in that area. So the question of this case before the Supreme Court was essentially, is it okay for an individual to own a gun if they are not technically in a militia? And Washington DC had said no, but the Supreme Court said yes. And so overnight, gun sales increased. Within the first year after that ruling, gun sales were up by 10%. And from then till now, so that was 2009. So the case was 2008. Between 2008, 2009, gun sales had gone up 10%. From 2009 to 2019, gun sales have doubled. And then we reach the present day where we have more shootings than days of the year. More mass shootings than days of the year. Way more shootings. Just mass shootings specifically more than days of the year. In 2018, we had the Parkland shooting. And after that, there was the whole slogan where they said, never again. But what does that actually mean? Never, what do you mean never again? It's like seeing a rat in your kitchen and leaving it to run around. But as long as you can't see it, you just say never again. But the rat is still there. So nothing has changed. Inevitably, more people have died particularly even between then and now, as is the American way, and and nothing much has been done about it, because clearly this entire debate is about freedom and protecting American freedoms. Um, And what we've come to now is the gun control debate. And I think it's a very valid consideration to honestly question whether or not gun controls are effective. From my perspective, I think it's honestly quite hard to say, because The answer relies on and factors in so many different elements. Um, I'll give you some examples. So one example in Japan, gun controls are super strict. Right now you need a background check. You need mental health screenings. After passing all of those, you do a full day safety course. After that, you then have to take a marksman test in which you have to score more than 95%. And then after all of that, you get a license, but the license only lasts for three years. And in the interim, you have yearly inspections. So as a result, Japan has the lowest gun homicide rate in the world. That, to most people, would generally seem like a good indication that gun controls are super effective. I think in some ways this is the case, but in other ways, this could also potentially be misleading because... Japan is also hugely homogenous. Most people in Japan are Japanese. Most people in Japan have similar upbringings, social backgrounds. It doesn't have the web of complex tapestry that a place like America will have, or even a place like Britain. Um, in America, you have immigrants from all over the world. People come to America for all kinds of different reasons. And so I think having universal policies such as this It's hard to apply because each state is different. Each area, each borough, each county is markedly different. They have a different social makeup. And this is also why I say it's very difficult to compare to Scandinavian type countries because people invoke Scandinavia for all kinds of arguments. But the point is, in Scandinavia, I think it's 97 or 98% of the entire population is white. They are all essentially the same people with the same social makeup, the same background. It's not an immigrant-centric, or not even centric, but they don't have a ton of immigrants. They don't have a ton of people that have different values, different social makeups, different backgrounds to their own. 
So it's actually very easy to implement legislation that affects everyone uniformly because the majority of people are uniform. That's not the case in America. And so something like this, something like what Japan has, one day it would be nice to have. It might be nice to have such a rigid system for gun licensing, but in today's environment, I don't think you'd get very far at all. The polar opposite to Japan in terms of gun control is somewhere like Honduras. So they have quite strict gun controls, but they also have rife gun trafficking and firearms are easily accessible, despite the fact that you're not supposed to have them. So gun controls exist, but the black market run by criminal groups is bigger. Gun control there is extremely ineffective because the government has no control over how criminal groups operate and and essentially they just can't get a handle on the extensive gun trafficking networks and and this is part of you know what a lot of republicans would argue becomes the issue if you completely outlaw guns then it just opens up a huge black market potential for guns to be sold and if guns are sold illegally then you're in a much worse position than where you started because at that point, you have no real way to track where guns are coming from, where they're being sold. At the moment, a large majority of crimes are actually committed by criminals stealing the guns from licensed and registered gun holders. So at, at some point, these guns were bought legally, they were sold legally, they were sold to people that should be allowed to have the guns, and then they're stolen or taken or sold to people that shouldn't be allowed to have the guns um, and so that's how a lot of guns in the US enter the criminal sphere so realistically gun controls in the same way that Honduras does them doesn't work there's also plenty of examples from countries like uh, Israel Switzerland where because they still have compulsory military service for people over the age of 18 almost everyone has a gun because you have been in the army so even though I think in Israel, for example, I think they still have quite tough gun controls for ordinary people. But the fact is that because everyone will have been in the army, everyone will also still have guns. Um, and so in some ways that kind of goes the other way because it's an argument where, where because everyone has guns, there's also less gun homicides. But it doesn't seem to be a case that's equivalent to America because in America, there's more guns than people, and yet the gun homicide rate is, I think, America currently, so America's 5% of the world's population, but America also contributes 35% of the world's gun homicides. America, compared to other developed nations, also accounts for 95% of all gun homicides, and within that, I think it's 97% of all gun homicides of women, um, or, or gun deaths, sorry, not homicides, so homicides plus suicides. But in sum, the point is that I don't think many of these examples work for America. Uh, there's also Australia. So Australia, I think it was in 1996, there was the Port Arthur massacre, where 35 people died. Um, and after that, Australia completely revolutionised their gun control measures. They planned to get rid of all their assault weapons, and a huge part of that was implementing a buyback programme. So they collected about 650,000 guns in the next few years, 
And now, on top of that, they also have stricter controls and licensing to own a gun. So you can still get them, they are still available to be sold, but it's just a lot harder. And self-defense is also no longer a valid excuse. So since the Port Arthur massacre, gun homicides have decreased by 72%. This is probably a much more equitable example to America. We've seen 35 people being killed in America in mass shootings on more than one occasion, I think on three occasions now. Um, But the point is, I guess the difference in America is that not much has changed. So while Australia may be a reasonable example, it's quite likely that the sticking point for a lot of people is going to still be the Second Amendment, and that's what it's going to come back to. So the buyback program worked for them because they didn't have any constitutional right to own guns. So the government can say, okay, no more guns, um, sell them back to us, we'll buy them, but that's going to be it for the most part. You'll still be able to buy them, but controls will be in place, so the provision will be very limited. But in America, because so many people stick rigidly by this inalienable right to keep and bear arms, because it was said by their forefathers in the 17 or 1800s, that somehow won't be acceptable and won't work. Here's the only answer I can offer. So if you can't take away the right to keep and bear arms and criminalizing all guns like they do in Honduras is is generally a bad idea because of how it leads to black markets and rising crime, um, why not just ban production on all civilian firearms? I know it's a crazy idea. It's incredibly drastic. Some would say drastic times may call for drastic measures, but the point is that Assault weapons were already banned in 1994, and that ban lasted for 10 years until it was overturned by Republicans in the Bush administration, so it's happened. Although that ban was strictly for assault weapons, and I don't actually think that goes far enough. I don't think, to a large extent, it's about the type of gun at all, even though that's become the media rhetoric and that's the angle that most people use now, so now everyone wants to talk about the the length of the stock, how many, how, how much ammunition a gun can carry, all things like that. I don't really think that that's the biggest issue because 75% of all gun-related deaths are still caused by handguns. So if the real issue you're trying to tackle is gun violence as a whole, then you have to go further than that. If you're just trying to tackle mass shootings, then maybe um, that's the most viable option. But I think realistically, you want to tackle all gun homicides. And the main reason, in my view at least, that assault weapons, uh, particularly AR-15 style rifles, are so demonised is because most people just think they look scary. I personally don't believe that assault weapons are the key issue here. And here's why. So the AR-15 has been manufactured since the 1950s. I think they were first produced by Armalite in 1952, They weren't very good at selling guns, so production was limited and also sales were limited. They later sold to Colt, and Colt are just much better at selling guns, so the AR-15, the original AR-15, went up tremendously. The patent on that ran out in the 1970s. I can't remember the exact year, but it was the 1970s, about 20 years later. And after that point, other gun manufacturers were able to make their own versions of it. And so that's why you'll hear often people say AR-15 style assault rifles because they aren't all specifically the original AR-15. So 
lots of different gun manufacturers make their own versions. Um, but the point is that different variations of the AR-15 have been in the public domain, and they were for over half a century before one was ever used in a mass shooting. Obviously, that is not to deny that the guns themselves aren't deadly, and AR-15s have been used in many of the most deadly mass shootings in the last decade. But I just think it would be myopic to think that the guns themselves are the only issue. I don't mean to reiterate that Republican rhetoric that, oh, it's just a bad guy with a gun. Obviously, the guns do kill. But the point is that we can see from data and statistics that the exact same type of guns have existed at times where mass shootings on the scale they do now did not. So the guns were there, the people were there, mass shootings were not on the same scale. So I don't think they're the only issue, although I do agree it's a factor. But here's how I'd put it. Eight of the ten most deadly mass shootings in American history occurred within the last 12 years. Starting from Virginia Tech shooting in 2007 to today. So in this last decade and a bit, we've had the most deadly mass shootings in the entire history of America. That indicates to me that something has changed. Something fundamental is different. Is it video games? I don't think so. Plenty of violent video games predated this period by quite a bit. Is it the guns themselves? Again, I don't really think so. Because handguns existed before this point, assault rifles existed before this point, and in largely the same form that they are now. Most of these guns, if you look at uh, Glock, for example, the Glock 17, Glock 19, um, some of these guns have existed for decades. All that changes is that there's a new generation where they make small iterative changes. With assault rifles, as another example, all of them are highly customizable. So what may change is that one gun manufacturer may, may make a new stock or may make a new barrel and then you can customize your existing body. You can buy these bodies for about a thousand dollars. Um, and then you can add new customizable parts to it. And, and that can completely change what this gun is and what the gun does. But my point is that, you know, these guns were and have been in circulation. The issue is that something substantial has changed in the fabric of American society within the last decade. And I'm not a magician or a clinical psychologist, so I cannot tell you what that is. But we have to admit and understand that today's America is drastically different to America a decade ago. And it's not just Trump either. So I've been hearing this rhetoric a lot from media outlets, from people that I interact with and talk to. And as much as I disagree with Trump's rhetoric and his policies and almost everything about him, it's an easy politicized excuse. It's a cop out. Yes, Trump may have provided a hotbed for white nationalism to take root, but white nationalists have always existed. In fact, since September the 11th, 2001, white men have accounted for 73% of domestic terror incidents. This is not out of the ordinary, this is not something new, something that's just occurred. 73% of all domestic terror incidents since 9-11 have been committed by one specific demographic. On one hand, this should probably indicate that there's a policing issue here, because young black boys with sweets in their pocket are still being gunned down in the streets, while people of this demographic are allowed to roam freely 
carrying their guns. We saw just a few years ago in North Carolina, the big rallies they had, the people storming the streets, armed with guns, with no pol- with hardly any police response whatsoever. Nobody asked any of those people holding huge assault rifles. No police officers asked them for their gun licenses. I didn't see a single instance of police officers stopping these people and saying, do you have the correct paperwork to be holding these guns? Have you undergone any criminal background checks, medical checks to allow you to have these guns? It's strange that a whole group of people can roam the streets freely and it's assumed somehow that no harm will befall anyone, that no consequences will result from hundreds of people walking through streets, walking through universities, armed as though they're going to battle, and police have no questions for them. Police have no cause for concern. They just stand there, let them have... Because these are open carry states, and this is part of the issue where, um, although it's sanctioned by law, where you know some states are open carry, some states you, you have concealed carry, you have concealed carry areas in open carry states. You know, there's it's a whole mix of where you can and cannot walk with guns openly. But the point is, there are several deep issues that are intrinsic to this situation that I think it's very easy to overlook if you just go for the easy targets. If you just say, oh, it's Trump, oh, it's the guns, it's this and that. You're allowing so much of this issue to fly by you. Because again, the Virginia Tech shooting was under George Bush. The Sandy Hook and the Florida nightclub and a few others were under Obama. That The issue has persisted. A part of me does think that the Virginia Tech shooting was a genesis because it's strangely not talked about as much anymore. But from that point onwards is when we've had the majority of the most deadly mass shootings in America. What happened in the aftermath of that event was, in my mind, a large catalyst in what's been allowed to unfold, because it happened. Nothing on that scale had happened in a long, long time. But Virginia Tech happened, and everything came to a standstill. America was shocked. And then they did nothing. And so it happened again, and again, and again. And I think what's happened is that clearly people just realised that actually what happens? You just go to jail? There's no immediate cause for, you know, there's no immediate sense of repercussion. Dylan Roof was taken to Burger King after slaughtering eight or nine black people in church. The point is that these people do not have anything in particular to fear. You get just as much penalty for shooting one person as shooting a dozen. So so what is there to fear? It's just as easy to get guns. It's just as easy to carry out these incidents because there is no control. In an open carry state, you can be seen walking with your AR-15 or any other, I don't want to demonize that particular type of gun. You know, you can be seen walking with any number of weapons openly in the streets. And once you turn a corner, you just unleash hell and bodies start to fly. And that's when people are like, whoa, oh my gosh, there's a problem. Was the problem not when you were armed to the teeth, just walking to Walmart? That 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 is a complete non-factor. That's not an issue. Concealed carry is a non-issue, um, and I I do understand there is nuance to this. 
and considering the current environment in some areas, it's strange that when people invoke the Second Amendment, the the point is that the the, the reason the right of the people to keep and bear arms should not be taken away is to protect against tyrannical and authoritarian governments. If there was ever a tyrannical government that was infringing on the rights of people existing within the United States, this is this is at least, you know, within top five, right? In American history, at least. I'm not talking about other places of the world. In American history. If there was ever a time for people to feel a need to rebel against a system that is oppressive, that is unfair and unjust and treats people with impunity, this is that time. So from that perspective, I might understand if young black men or immigrants or undocumented people wanted to feel safe and wanted to feel as though they had a right to protect themselves. But those are not the people that are protesting the right to keep and bear arms. The people that seem to be the most oppressed in American society are not the ones that are pushing for a piece of legislation that seeks to protect those very people. That's not who's behind this. It's the middle class. It's the people that have the power. It's the people that want the control. And we've seen civilians like George Zimmerman be able to shoot young, unarmed boys and and get away practically scot-free. So this is the issue. So, like I said, in my view, you have to take drastic responses. You have to stop or at the very least limit domestic gun production for civilians. There are over 400 million guns already in circulation in the US. It's more guns than people. So in my mind, stopping or severely limiting production does two things. One, it reduces the flow of guns. That's always a good thing. But it also introduces scarcity. So the demand will still exist because, ironically, in the aftermath of every mass shooting, gun sales tick upwards. I guess that's a lot to do with uh, people wanting to protect themselves, people wanting to feel safe when the next incident happens. But what happens? Criminals steal the guns. People that shouldn't have the guns get hold of the guns and, and it just continues to proliferate. It happens more and more. It doesn't stop. So if you introduce scarcity, then guns are still legal. So there's no need for an extensive black market. But because of the scarcity, guns become more expensive. And so suddenly, regardless of that criminal element, a gun becomes something that you can't just go and pick up because you have $100 burning a hole in your pocket. You can't just buy a new handgun for less than a Chromebook and an assault rifle for less than a MacBook. Right now, you can pick up deadly firearms with money left over from your grocery shopping. So in my view, making price a barrier to entry can have a huge difference on the accessibility of guns. And that's even before you get to consider adding other layers like background and mental health checks and firearm safety courses, etc. I think all of those courses of action are very valid and very necessary. But I do think that something needs to be done to limit the barrier to entry to owning a gun beyond just the mental checks. Because some of these people are, are, as much as you say, I understand that you have to be on some level depraved. There needs to be some element where you're not completely correct. 
to leave your house and go and kill multiple people. But that's not the same as saying someone is mentally ill. That's not the same as having some recognised, diagnosable mental illness. Um, and I think by coddling people, by treating people as lone wolves with mental illnesses, you risk allowing this issue to continue growing, continue proliferating, and things will only get worse. So that's all I really have to say on this issue. Americans need to realise that the world they're living in now is completely different from that of their founding fathers. It's even completely different from that of a decade ago. Either you need to decide that enough is enough, or you give up and just concede that, as James Allen Fox proposed in a study that he co-authored for Northeastern University, mass murder may just be the price that America has to pay for living in a society where personal freedom is so highly valued. That's all for today. Thanks for tuning in. Please don't forget to rate, to review and subscribe. It really helps the podcast. And if you have any comments or rebuttals, feel free to get at me on Twitter at DieDailyEdge or at JustCallMeBaba. Founders Brewing Company has found a way to make an IPA you can enjoy anytime that's perfect for any occasion with their all-day IPA. At 4.7 ABV, you can still taste the hops, of course, but it's the complex array of malts and grains that make all-day IPA a beer that will grab your attention. That full flavor and low ABV is what continues to make it a staple in my fridge. Look for Founders in your favorite beer store or check out their full line of beer at foundersbrewing.com. Founders Brewing Company, born and brewed in Michigan since 1997. Circle K is America's thirst stop. And Dave's, especially when Dave needs refreshments for family movie night. So Dave heads straight to Circle K, where he grabs icy Polar Pop cups and frosters for the kids and chilled beer for the grown-ups. Enjoy family movie night, Dave. We'll be here for you all summer long. And right now at Circle K, save on all 20-ounce Pepsi products. Three for $4.25. So make us your first stop. Circle K, America's thirst stop.